0: All right, this is our lecture on the Acts of the Apostles. So this is part two of the work that we had uh, discussed in the last section of this module. Remember, Luke Acts were both written by Luke, and you can go to the Luke lecture to see how we join those two together. Basically, they have a common dedication to a person named Theophilus but the in Greek and the, on the manuscripts that we have it's called the Acts of the Apostles. And the reason it's called the Acts of the Apostles is because from the perspective of of the history that it's retelling Jesus leaves the scene very early on in the book in chapter 1 he ascends into heaven there are some Uh, angels there that tell us that he will return one day in the way in which he came. So that idea gives rise to this perspective in the early church and that continues to today that Jesus will one day return because of what we see here in the book of Acts, that Jesus will one day return to restore his kingdom and to set the world right. So we see that in Chapter One, but the reason why it's called the Acts of the Apostles is because the apostles, which the word apostle means uh, one who is sent, a sent one. The Greek word apostello means I send, and so an apostle is one that has been sent or authorized by Jesus to proclaim His message to the nations. It's a special office for a particular time. In general, is the way that it's understood in that these apostles were people who were witnesses to uh, the the ministry of Jesus in some way, they were uh, witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, and they were leaders in the early church. And so because of all of these things, they carried with them often the authority of God. So that is why the issue of apostleship is so important when we talk about the, what scripture is, because They were considered authorized, a special group of authorized representatives who brought Jesus' message from Israel to the nations. All right, so the Acts of the Apostles. Now, some people like to call this book the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The reason for that is because the Spirit who is sent from Jesus is referred to in the book of Acts in chapter one as the promise of the Father. The Spirit is sent um, to the church to empower the church as witnesses. We have read this and looked at this text uh, in the first week of class. Acts 1.8 says, But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so what you see throughout the book of Acts is the the spirit the holy spirit sent from god kind of it says it falls on people or people are filled with the spirit and they are able to do uh supernatural things like speak in a language uh speak in tongues uh they're able to um heal people they're able to um uh, lay hands on people and have them receive the Spirit. So it's the Spirit in the book of Acts is a very visible presence that God has basically come into someone's life, that uh, that person has become a follower of Jesus. Is There's this very visible representation that that's happened and that happens um, for lots of different people, and that's the that's the big deal in the book of Acts is that this doesn't just happen to Jews. It doesn't just happen to Jesus's original followers. It expands and goes beyond those boundaries. And the Holy Spirit is kind of like they're they're forced to go. Wow, like um, it looks like the Spirit is working over there. So God must be working in those people too. Oh, the Spirit's working over there. I see those people over there speaking in tongues. He must be God must be working in those people too. Uh, completely unexpected. But what they're saying is that the, the proof of the fact that the gospel, the good news about Jesus is expanding is that people are coming to know Jesus and that it, and are coming to become a part of God's people and that is evidenced through these miraculous things that the, the spirit brings. So again, thought to be written by Luke, we've talked about this, who's the traveling ministry companion of Paul, formerly anonymous, probably written in the 60s. The reason they say this is because there's no mention of any issues regarding, like, the, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which took place in 70 A.D. And so they think, man, that would have been a really big thing to leave out if, uh, if it had happened. So probably, the way, just the way the book ends, it seems likely that the destruction of the temple hadn't happened yet. And so therefore, the book was probably written in the 60s, the mid-60s A.D. So what did Luke in Acts care about? And I think here your textbook really gets a does a good job here. Okay, it says Luke wrote uh, Luke wrote, and then I added in Acts to demonstrate that that the astonishing growth of Christianity from Jerusalem to Rome, and even more significantly from Jew to Gentile, was all part of God's divine plan. So you can see here how this connects with the book of Luke, right? The first part where Luke was trying to demonstrate that in line with the scriptures of Israel, the Hebrew scriptures, and in line with the teaching of Jesus, the gospel is going forth to all the nations because God desired to bring salvation to all people. There's that global scope that salvation is for everyone. So Luke and Acts builds on that foundation to show how that got the gospel, the good news about Jesus, salvation from sin, um, deliverance from judgment, uh, moves from Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified and where the original disciples were, all the way to Rome, the center, basically the center, the hub of the known universe. So, again, Luke wrote Acts to demonstrate that the astonishing growth of Christianity from Jerusalem to Rome, and even more significantly from Jew to Gentile, was all part of God's divine plan. So, there are some central concepts in the book of Acts that I want to talk about. Again, part two of two demonstrates how the good news about Jesus spread from Jew to Gentile, from Jerusalem to Rome. So not only spread from spread from one people group to another, but spread geographically from Jerusalem, Middle East, what we call the Middle East or Near East, to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. So one of the things that we need to camp out on just a little bit, is this uh, reminding us about the idea of the tensions that existed between Jew and Gentile. Remember, for Jews at that time, many of them who lived in Jerusalem, they were observant Jews who felt like it was wrong to associate, have dinner with, touch even, probably talk to, they couldn't marry, or they they felt it was wrong to marry Gentiles. Gentiles were any non-Jews, a Gentile is just a non-Jew. So the Gentiles being non-Jews, the idea that the gospel, that the message of Jesus would be for them as well, would have been unthinkable. And furthermore, the idea that because of that uh, gospel going to the Gentiles, that they uh, were now brothers and sisters, that they were part of the same family because of what God had done in Jesus was just completely crazy to think about. And so, what you see in the book of Acts is really exciting. You see how God, or Luke demonstrates how God proves to them that against against whatever they might think, that the gospel is going forward to people that they would never have expected. So there's this tension that exists between Jew and Gentile. And we see that expressed. Uh, well, What we can do real quick is look here and see a little bit of that. So we see in Acts chapter 2 something called the Day of Pentecost. Okay, let's look at two five, And this is where they see the evidence of God's power coming upon them as recipients of the gospel as followers of jesus it says oh no let's do uh, verse one when the day of pentecost arrived so chapter two verse one the day of pentecost arrived they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire But others were mocking and said, they are filled with new wine. So the spirit comes upon them. There's this loud noise and they are given the ability to proclaim the good news about Jesus in languages that the implication is languages that they didn't know. So we call that speaking in tongues. Now, um, that has developed into something uh, into something a little bit different. And we're going to talk about that probably when we get to the book of 1 Corinthians, but the way that we see tongues practiced today is not uh, generally in this way of a language that's recognizable. Um, the way that we see tongues, like for example, practiced in the Pentecostal church, the charismatic church, which, which is uh, my background uh, many years ago is, uh, and I'm, I'm not a part of that movement anymore, but the, uh, is, is a little bit more of a ecstatic utterance type of thing. It's a language that would maybe not be as intelligible to to um, a person. It's not it's not probably a language, like an established language that someone could recognize as in this situation. And so I think we see maybe two different models of what tongues are. This is uh, a particular one, given that at a particular time, evidence, that the Spirit had come on them, that they were able to supernaturally speak in a language that, was, that they didn't already know. That's the implication. So we see evidence here that the Spirit has come upon them. These are the people that Jesus was talking to when he said, the Holy Spirit, uh, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. So right there in Jerusalem, as they're witnessing speaking in tongues, they are being the witnesses that Jesus talked about because the Holy Spirit had come upon them, they were witnessing. So we see the beginning of the fulfillment of Acts 1.8 right here in Acts chapter two. Then we, uh, as we move along, we start to see that the gospel runs into some problems in Jerusalem. And the way that this is typically understood is that the God wanted the church to spread out from Jerusalem, Acts 1.8, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, it's the ends of the earth. So the fact that they were staying in one place and ministering in Jerusalem was kind of going against what what happened. And so the way that it's typically understood is that the church comes under persecution in Jerusalem and that forces them to spread out and that takes the gospel from Jerusalem to the nations. Now one of the major uh, turning points here is the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was a follower of Jesus, and he is they typically called the first deacon. Uh, you'll read about that in early on in acts or you will have read about it already. he's the he's uh the first kind of like, very servant-hearted kind of person that um, we typically think of when we think of the word um, deacon as a leader in church, and so it's it's kind of probably where we get uh, where we get that idea from in the in the seed form it's talked about later in, in Paul's letters as well. But anyway, there's there's this guy Stephen, and he basically gives this long speech where he goes through the entire history of israel and he talks and he he ends with this this is just crazy um uh, verse 51 he says this he's talking to the jews he says you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears you always resist the holy spirit as your fathers did so do you which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, but they ground their, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we see that that the the tension between, uh, between the Jews and this Uh, message about Jesus. So it's not only the tension between Jew and Gentile, but the tension between the Jews and this message about Jesus was, uh, was rising. And it gets to this point where this guy, Stephen, he accuses them and says, you murdered the one that you should have known to worship, the righteous one. And he says, and look, there he is, Jesus, the son of man sitting at the right hand of God. And so that just they're not there they they still just do not get it. They they just like flips a switch in their mind, they go crazy, they and they stone him to death, they execute him, and there's someone there named Saul and he approves of the execution and he get he becomes involved in this persecution of the church as well. And so he's going into houses, he's getting um he's getting people and he's committing them to prison for and we don't really know this is a really interesting thing is is that what crime had been committed by these people that he was committing them to prison? We don't really know. He could they could have been accused of kind of like stirring up um, stirring up strife or kind of riots, those kind of things like like we see in the case of Stephen. We don't really know the reason why uh, why Saul was uh, was taking part in this, but I love the next I love the next thing that we see about Saul. okay so go over to chapter nine it says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. I just love that it says, like, he was breathing threats and murder. It's like, it's, I mean, it's a very visual way of describing what was going on, that he was just like, like, like almost like hyperventilating, like huffing and puffing, just angry, hating the church, right? Hating these followers of Jesus. And look at what Luke says happened. He saw a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting." And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias goes, he lays hands on him, he prays for him. These scales fall from Paul's eyes, or from Saul's eyes. He receives his sight again. Now, this this Saul is the one who eventually comes to be called Paul. So, at some uh, at some point in the book of Acts, for some reason we don't really know why, he starts being called Saul, or call, start being called Paul. Sorry. And this is the Paul who wrote thirteen letters of the New Testament. He was once an enemy of. Jesus, an enemy of the church of God, and he has this dramatic conversion experience in which he he has a vision of Jesus. He's, he claims that he saw Jesus himself, that Jesus appeared to him, and he uh, becomes an apostle sent by Jesus, commissioned by Jesus, to go and proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. So, this is a very, very, um, uh, interesting idea. And I think to me, it's also very encouraging too, because, um, there were time there've been, there were times in my life before I was a believer when I, when I probably would have been, uh, and I probably considered myself an enemy of, of the church. I, uh, really didn't like, uh, Christians all that much. And they really, uh, annoyed me. And <laughs> I thought they would all just kind of like, uh, drink some, like, Uh, I don't know if you've heard the phrase before, drink the Kool-Aid or whatever. They had all kind of like bought into some big lie about a grandfather in the sky or whatever. And and, um, so when I think about Saul, when I think about the fact that he was was throwing members of uh, the church in prison for following Jesus, and he was breathing threats and murder, I get a little bit encouraged thinking, well, if God can use someone like Paul in such an amazing way, then uh, he can use me as well. But, this idea of the gospel moving from the Jews to the Gentiles comes to, uh, comes to fruition, we see in uh, Acts chapter 10, actually. I want to go there first and talk about Peter and Cornelius. So, we've talked about the idea that God wanted, uh, Jesus wanted the gospel to move from Jerusalem To these other groups of people, and then we see in Acts chapter two the very a very microcosm of that happening, where they're talking to other Jews and other in in their own language, and so they're proclaiming the gospel to Jews in their own language, Jews that are out that are not from Jerusalem. So already the message is starting to spread, right? And they're gonna and those people that heard the message of Jesus, the good news about Jesus, about salvation from sin, are gonna go and take that message to back back home to their own to their own regions right now here's where it jumps from jew to gentile this is crazy acts chapter 10 at caesarea there was a man named cornelius a centurion of what was known as the italian cohort so a centurion is a roman uh, roman soldier an official usually someone higher up I, th- uh, I think they typically say the centurion was in charge of 100 soldiers um, that's, uh, like century, hundred years, centurion, it's Latin, uh, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the poor and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? So Cornelius has a vision, Cornelius is a Gentile, but he's someone who is has kind of affiliated himself with the Jewish faith, he's called a God-fearer. And so in a sense, he's kind of like a safe Gentile. He's someone that would uh, they may have hung out with a little bit. Um, they, they would have allowed him maybe in the synagogue, kind of in the outskirts, and to hear some of the teaching, possibly. Um, So Cornelius is kind of like, he's got one foot in Judaism, one foot in the Gentile world. He's not fully converted to Judaism. In order to do that, he would have had to been circumcised and gone through several uh, rituals and things like that. He's still a Gentile, uh, but he acknowledges that the God of Israel is the true God. He fears him and he obeys him by uh, giving generously and so on and so forth. Now, Peter also has a vision and Peter's vision is that uh, that, uh, these things, these foods that were once considered unclean are now considered clean. So these things that this, the idea of the food laws, right. That we've talked about before that separated Jews from Gentiles, that J- Jews could only eat certain things that couldn't eat pork. Um, he has a vision that these things are no longer unclean. He says, uh in this vision, Jesus says to him in verse 15 of chapter 10, and the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean do not call common. So what he's saying is that now we're in a period of the history of the world where this food law thing, this, this uh, requirement about food, clean and unclean food, is no longer going to be a barrier to people following Jesus and becoming a part of God's people. So, after he has this vision, the messenger comes from Cornelius, they go to uh, Cornelius' house, and the, uh, here it is, verse 34 of chapter 10. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree sometimes the cross is referred to as a tree this is made of wood but god raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people but to us who had been chosen by god as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by god to be judge of all the living and dead to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. And so like I said, this idea that, so, so Peter is giving the gospel message. He's saying, he's saying that Jesus is the one that God sent to judge the living and the dead. He's the one that we've been waiting for. And because of what he's done through him, we may be forgiven of our sins and that as he was speaking, and as they came to believe in Jesus, because these people didn't know about Jesus necessarily, or hadn't believed in him yet, the spirit fell on them too, as an evidence of the fact that they were brought into God's people as well. These Gentiles who had never been circumcised, who were not previously a part of God's people. So we see here the the gospel message jump from Jew to Gentile. This thing is huge, right? It's so huge that they basically have to like hold a conference. It's called the Jerusalem council to decide what to do with these Gentiles, okay? Jerusalem council, Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they're saying, no, no, no. You can't get rid of all the Jewish stuff. You still need to be circumcised and then you can be a part of God's people. Then you can receive forgiveness of sins. And that's confusing because Cornelius, for example, had received the spirit and he wasn't circumcised. Um, uh, Verse two of chapter 15. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. So they're saying, we've seen it. We've seen it with our own eyes that the Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And basically, they go through this whole this whole discussion about whether Gentiles need to become Jews in order to follow Jesus, in order to have their sins forgiven. And they decide no, they don't need to. So, because you look in verse 28, for it has for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. So they're talking about the requirements that are going to be put on Gentiles, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they write this letter to the Gentiles and say, and say, hey, um, you don't have to become Jews. You don't have to become circumcised. Just do these these few things. And these few things are probably actually aimed at, at not increasing the tension between Jew and Gentile, because these people are now gonna be worshiping together in, in the same church together, in the same body. And so because of that, they still need to be sensitive to each other. So for example, the idea of um, like what's been sacrifice, food food sacrificed to idols, we'll talk about that in first Corinthians. And then also um, what's been strangled, these kind of things, they they would have been difficult for the Jews to to accept and to be around people that had had uh, they were eating food sacrificed to idols. And so they, uh, the Jerusalem Council decides, don't uh, don't do these things in order to maintain harmony within the church. But you don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to observe the Sabbath, you don't have to do all of the Jewish things in order to have your sins forgiven. So this is a really really big deal. The church decides. Now there's a lot that goes on, uh, Paul, and it focuses a lot on what Paul does, um, even to the point where he gets in Acts chapter 17. To what's called the Areopagus, Mars Hill, and he proclaims the good news about Jesus to the uh, the philosophers there. And so that's like so different. That's like the opposite. That's like the way far end of the spectrum from from Cornelius. So you have you know Jews over here. These are like the safe people. It's like it makes sense for them to become followers of Jesus and for the Spirit to fall on them. And then uh, you've got uh, so you've got the Jews. Then you've got Cornelius, who's kind of got one foot in one world, one foot in the other. And then you've got these. Philosophers and Paul's so Paul's going like like way out there and and proclaiming the gospel to them and and making the state and at Luke by including this in his narrative narrative in Acts is making the statement that yes the gospel is even for these philosopher people um, who have no association with Judaism whatsoever. You see that in Acts chapter seventeen. Well, I want to land the plane here basically. The the book ends in chapter twenty eight. What happens is Paul, wherever he goes, he's stirring up controversy because, for example, he he is encouraging these Gentiles to stop worshiping idols, and there's like money wrapped up in all that. You see that whenever he's in Ephesus, and um, basically these people who were uh, buying buying these idols that were being made, they stopped buying them because they're like, no, I'm following Jesus now. And then Paul uh, gets arrested because he's stirring up this uh, contention with the people in, uh, in Ephesus. So, he just is this figure of controversy wherever he goes. And uh, he makes it eventually to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he's accused of bringing a gentile into the temple and he as again stirring up this this uh contention and so then he's arrested and he basically keeps going further and further and further up the chain of command in the in the roman government kind of and uh because paul is a roman citizen he's from tarsus uh, he has rights as a Roman citizen, and so he has a due process that he's allowed to go through. And he actually views this as kind of a a positive thing, it seems like, when you look at his letters, because he's saying, uh, well, man, look at all of these really important people that I get to preach the gospel to. This is exact, This is exactly what I should be doing. I'm getting the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to people that I would have never been able to meet before even or get get close to. And so he's, uh, he's preaching the good news about Jesus to all these different people. And then finally he appeals to uh, Caesar. So he has to go to Rome. He appeals to Caesar to hear his case. So the book of Acts ends, Acts 28, like I said, And let's look at verse 28, 28, 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Remember, this whole theme of of the gospel moving to the Gentiles has always been God's plan. And uh, verse 30, Luke describing Paul, And he lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so Paul kind of, I mean, uh, Luke kind of ties a bow on this whole idea of going from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. He's he's right there in the hub of civilizations. The way that most people interpret this is that being there in the hub of civil, civilization means that from there, if uh, if the gospel's there, it can go forth to the to the entire known world. And so from there, it'll go to the ends of the earth. It'll go to the entire rest of the world. So these are some of the, these are, uh, we, we kind of have walked through the book of Acts because I think it's really, really important for understanding the the movement of the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles. And we're next module going to be starting to talk about Paul. And the book of Acts f- provides the framework for Paul's ministry. So what we see in the book of Acts is kind of a, a narrative account of, of Paul's uh, Paul's ministry and Paul's travels. Well, throughout this time as well, Paul is also writing letters to different churches. And so he, before he ever goes to Rome um, uh, to preach the gospel as a prisoner, he is, he writes a letter to Rome called Romans. And so that's the letter that we have in the New Testament now. So it's important to see kind of the, to frame Paul's letters in terms of the narrative that we see in Acts. And to understand it in light of where Paul has come from, his understanding of, of who Jesus is, his understanding of the idea of suffering, right? Because Jesus said he will see how much he will suffer for my name. So, so Paul connects this idea of ministry closely with the idea of suffering. And for him, they go hand in hand. Because in his life, so much of his ministry caused suffering for himself. Um, and, and he witnessed for other people as well. So this informs our understanding of the, the other 13 letters of the New Testament that Paul wrote as we go into that next week. Again, just to bring to your attention the book of Acts, at a glance from your book, the witness in Jerusalem, the witness in Judea and Samaria, the witness to the ends of the earth. And so you can see here, obviously, they're trying to use Acts 1-8 as the pattern for the whole book, and that's the way that people typically will understand Acts 1-8 is it forms the kind of the outline of the book of Acts. Um, oh yeah, and we already talked about Paul and Rome. So um, these are all really, really important concepts. It's really important to understand how the gospel moves from the Jews to the Gentiles um, because, the, because this is a significant source of tension. When we get to the book of Romans, for example, or the book of Galatians or Ephesians chapter two, these are all really, really important concepts. And so we need to make sure that we get that uh, running. So if you have any questions, I'd love to talk about that in class. And we see you on Wednesday.